this question is is kind of hard for me, but I wanted to make sure that people knew uh, basically the terror that she had to live in every single day of her life while living in that home. That was Dana, a Dover, Arkansas native and close friend of Loretta Simmons, the second oldest daughter of Jean and Becky Simmons. 17-year-old Loretta was choked to death by her father the afternoon of December 22, 1987, and then buried in a hole in the ground with her mother, four of her siblings, and her three-year-old niece. Loretta was a girl who Dana admired and loved to be around. Over time, Dana realized that Loretta did not have the freedom she had. Loretta did not have a driver's license, let alone a car. Even picking up the phone to call Dana one night was not going to happen. There was no phone in Loretta's house. Dana and Loretta had almost an unbreakable friendship. They hung out all the time in school, and during the rare times Loretta was allowed to leave the house, she usually was with Dana, but that was often tricky. She wasn't allowed to go and say, you know, I'm going to go stay the night at so-and-so's house, see you later. It was never like that because I would always ask her, well, why don't you come over to the house? You know, why don't you, you know, come over here? And But she had told me that, you know, she was only allowed out of the house when it had something specifically to do with school. Dana and Loretta had to get creative to see each other outside school functions. They'd sometimes cook up a cover story so that Loretta could hang out with Dana. She knew that girl time was cathartic for Loretta because her friend lived such a sheltered life. Whenever we wanted to go hang out or there was a group of us that were going to meet in Russellville or something like that, and Russellville's, you know, that's where a lot of us from Dover would go. We would go cruising on a Friday night or Saturday night. But there was a few times I remember when I was driving my car, I had a little Volkswagen bug. We would just drive around town, cruise on 4th Street, and just laugh and have the best time ever. So Loretta was never allowed to spend the night at Dana's house, but Dana did spend the night at Loretta's house once. Dana isn't exactly sure when that was, but it was less than a year, perhaps only a few months, before Loretta and her family were killed. I do remember getting there to her house. I drove my car and followed the bus up, and she always had to ride the bus with her um, little siblings. And so all of us got in the house. I met her mom, and we were in the dining room when we first got there. Everybody was talking. Her mom was just as sweet as could be, and, you know, we were in the kind of a dining room area, which was right next to their kitchen, And I remember us all, you know, laughing, talking, cutting up, her mom smiling, the kids are smiling, you know, Loretta and I are smiling, just having a good time. Then a car pulled up and the fun was over. The laughter stopped. All those smiles disappeared. What Dana observed in that house after Loretta's father came home remains imprinted in her memory. And she never went back. Presented by the Arkansas Democrat Gazette, you're listening to The Devil of Pope County, America's Worst Family Massacre. In episode four, you heard from Scott Bowles, who worked a few weeks for the Arkansas Democrat before telling his editor 
that he had just accepted a job with the rival Arkansas Gazette. His editor at the Democrat demanded that he get the hell out of the building, but not before he was told that he was making a big mistake and that the Gazette would assign him boring fluff pieces. That parting shot stuck with Scott. When he got to the Gazette, he was determined to prove that editor wrong. One of the best ways to make his mark, he figured, was to take on the Ronald Gene Simmons case. He decided, some time after Simmons's second trial, to come to his editor with a bold request. I do remember the story when Simmons punched the prosecutor, and I became so fascinated with this guy that he didn't seem to care that he was going to be found guilty, maybe even wanted to be found guilty and get the whole thing over with. He did what he wanted to do. It was done. And I was so intrigued by this guy that I asked John Hanchett, he was one of the superiors at the Gazette, whether I could take eight weeks just on that. And in a rare instance of bravery, he said, yeah, take it off. Scott had a plan in mind to write an all-encompassing long-form story about Simmons, his background, how he lived, how he terrorized his family, and how he carried out the murders. He uncovered details about the case that had never been reported. He also interviewed Simmons's neighbors and acquaintances and heard one shocking tale after another. On Sunday, June 24, 1990, Scott's story was published in the Arkansas Gazette. The headline read, Father Turned Killer, The Simmons Story. It was a massively successful story, and it was literally massive. It took up a lot of the front page and then jumped to page 14A then 15A, then 16A, and then finally 17A. The piece was spread across five pages, and the story and all of the accompanying visuals, timelines, photos, and more occupied all of the space on those jump pages. It was definitely no fluff piece. Scott still remembers many of the anecdotes that he included in his story, as well as those that wound up cut from the story, such as this one. I went out to Simmons' house which you could only get so far up the driveway and talk to people there. And I remember getting story after story about what a son of a bitch he was. School kids would come up, and by kids I mean maybe junior high, maybe freshmen in high school, but these kids coming up telling me that Simmons would throw rocks at them while they were waiting for the school bus. Scott also remembered this detail, told to him by Pope County Sheriff's deputies, which he did include in his story. What I recall of them telling me was how well he lived in his trailer, that the family got staple groceries, flour, wheat, basics to eat, but in his locked room, he had canned oysters. He... He lived as well as you can live in a trailer in Russellville. There was one other detail Scott included in his father-turned-killer piece, one that struck me and undoubtedly many others who read it. Scott described the reaction of Patrick McNulty Sr., the father of Dennis McNulty, Sheila's husband, when he first heard about the Russellville shootings, which was the first piece of news that broke about the Simmons slayings. Patrick was at home with his family on December 28, 1987, when a local news segment aired that his son's father-in-law had gunned down six people. 
Patrick knew that his son, Dennis, had taken Sheila, seven-year-old Sylvia, and one-year-old Michael to the Simmons' house the day after Christmas. Dennis had told him they were going to spend the night there and that they would spend the following day, the 27th, in Little Rock. Patrick had not heard from his son since Christmas, and when he saw that news broadcast, he got in his car and drove to Dennis's house in Camden. There was not a single light on in the house. There was no trace of anyone. Not only that, but it had rained over Christmas, so the ground was soft and muddy. There were no tire tracks, so no one had been at the home since the family left for Dover. That was the moment that Patrick realized his son, daughter-in-law, and grandchildren were likely dead. On June 25, 1990, the day of his execution, Ronald Gene Simmons was given a final meal. It was the same meal he had received on his previously scheduled execution date 15 months earlier. Filet mignon, an array of sides, and a couple of 7-ups. The first time he was served that meal, Simmons was in the middle of eating it when he got word that the execution was stayed, but no such call was coming this time. A Department of Corrections spokesman addressed the media in the hours before the scheduled execution. Inmate Simmons completed his last meal approximately 15 minutes ago. He is still quietly sitting in his cell. I understand that he is still declining any contact from outside of the department. His demeanor, as I say, is, is similar to what it has been. Simmons gave no answer when prison officials asked him about the final arrangement of his body following his execution. He did not seem to care. After that, Simmons took a nap. He was awakened shortly after 8 p.m. so that he could be put to death. Among the 14 execution witnesses were his two attorneys, Hope County Sheriff Jim Bolin, Prosecutor John Bynum, and Arkansas Attorney General Steve Clark. There were also two members of the media among the witnesses, Bill Simmons of the Associated Press, who was not related to the condemned, and Scott Bowles of the Gazette. It took some maneuvering for Scott to get that last seat. Oh, I love this story. So Simmons was so big, everybody wanted a piece of that story. So we knew that all of the press outlets would vote for themselves. So we needed at least one extra vote beyond our own. And there was a reporter from the Gazette who had gone to the Fayetteville paper and Max Brantley, this hulking editor, went to him and did cajole, did politics. I think he even told me, I'm going to try to see if we can get someone to vote for us. And I saw him go around talking to people. But I saw him politicking around the room while we were all gathering our notes and preparing for what the AP and the local or whoever was going to get there was going to come out. And, and say, and I saw Max making a beeline for me, and he pointed at me, and he said, you're in. The fact that one of the seats inside the viewing area was going to be occupied by a Gazette reporter infuriated the editors at the Democrat. To Scott, once he got the official word that he would be a witness to the execution, everything afterward happened in rapid succession. 
He had almost no time to mentally prepare for what was to come. I remember getting into a sheriff's deputy's car and being driven into the into the penitentiary and then sitting with Sheriff Bowen. I think he was on my right and going into this small area that was almost like we were witnessing surgery, the way doctors would look down. We weren't elevated. We were ground level, but we were kind of wrapped around these windows that would be the death chamber. But we didn't know that at the time. It was dark. The curtains were closed. So the sheriff and I and the family, the few family that were left and who, uh, whoever else was authorized to witness it, were paraded in there. And we all took our seats. And there was no announcement about what would happen. Bolin didn't say anything. He was very somber. And so we just sat there. It was quiet and dark. While those curtains were still covering the window, Simmons was ushered into the chamber. He was securely fastened on the gurney, and the IV for the deadly mixture of drugs was securely attached to his arm. And then the curtains whisked open, and there was this beam of fluorescent light that filled the witness area. I remember how bright it was suddenly that you are looking at a black curtain, and then it's open, and there's Simmons on the gurney with an IV tied to his vein, and it began. It was so sudden. Before the drugs were administered, the head of the Department of Corrections asked Simmons whether he had any last words. Simmons gave a short statement. He said, quote, Justice delayed, finally be done, is justifiable homicide, end quote. The deadly liquids entered intravenously, and Simmons soon lost consciousness. Witnesses later said they saw Simmons twitch at least a couple times. Eventually, Simmons turned blue and was pronounced dead. The entire process took 17 minutes. Arkansas Attorney General Steve Clark was seated near Bowles. Simmons was only the second inmate executed in Arkansas since 1964. The previous inmate was executed by electric chair. Steve Clark witnessed that one too, and it took place just one week before Simmons' execution. So the death chamber at the Cummins unit had to be converted from a room with an electric chair to a room containing a gurney and IV equipment. Watching someone die by lethal injection was difficult for Steve Clark in one sense. When that method is used, the condemned man loses consciousness early, but he doesn't lose his life until several minutes later. Death was no heartbeat. And so we had death in seconds, but we had heartbeat for minutes. And, you know, and that was, that was, we just hadn't, we hadn't calculated that. And the minutes seemed like hours. He called the process of death by injection painfully long. And that's the memory that sticks with him the most when he thinks about his direct involvement in this case. It was not standing in front of the seven justices of the Supreme Court. It was not the press conferences or calling Simmons a scumbag. It was watching him die a slow death. As for Scott Bowles, he said the entire scene was nothing like he had imagined. It was eerily non-dramatic. It was the most peaceful thing besides a couple twitches in Jean's body. It was as if a dog had been put to sleep, but with much less sorrow. It was amazing how quickly it happened and went. 
After it was over, the full media were assembled outside. After the official announcement of death was made, a few of the witnesses walked to the microphone, including AP reporter Bill Simmons. During the process of administering the, the chemicals, it appeared that Mr. Simmons nodded off at around 9.03 or 9.04 p.m. After about 9.10, Mr. Simmons appeared to not uh, cough any longer, appeared to not breathe anymore. Doc Irwin one of Simmons's defense attorneys, also addressed the media. He said that he and his co-counsel, John Harris, from the very beginning, honored their client's request to be executed without any interference from them. In the last analysis, we believe we did what our client asked us to do, believing that it was his right to say what he wanted done with his case. Simmons's body was unclaimed by his family. On June 27, 1990, he was buried in a pauper's grave outside Grady, a city with a population of about 300 people. Loretta's close friend, Dana, visited the Simmons house months before her friend's death. And that was the one time she met Ronald Jean Simmons. At the start of the episode, you heard Dana describe what it was like being at the house when Simmons wasn't home. The kids were happy. Their mother was happy. As modestly as they lived, it seemed as though the family knew how to make their home a joyous place, as long as a certain person wasn't home. As expected, all those good spirits inside the house that night vanished as soon as the family patriarch pulled up. I remember her mom and the kids and her turn around and look and um, like as if they heard something and they said, Dad's home. And at that point, everything went silent. And here I am just, okay, I like to talk and laugh and cut up and have a good time. So I'm like, well, what's going on? What's going on? And Loretta said, Dad's home. We don't, we don't speak of a whisper. We just, so just be quiet. Okay. And I'm like, okay. You know, and so the other little kids, they went back to where the rooms, I believe, I don't know, but they left the kitchen and dining room area. I remember turning and watching him as he came in the house. When he walked in, Simmons did not acknowledge Dana, did not even look at his family. He walked straight to his living room chair and sat down. His wife made him a plate, pulled a can of beer out of the refrigerator, cracked open the beer, and brought the can and the plate to him. Becky walked back into the dining room and told Loretta she needed to introduce her friend to her father. Loretta walked up to her father, paused for a moment, like she was building up courage, and made the introduction. She said, Dad, this is my friend Dana from school. Dana, this is my dad. And he turns around, and I just will never forget the look on his face. He had this just a very icy look. It was I can't really even explain it in his eyes and in his face. He didn't smile, but he looked me straight in the eye, and it was just, it scared me and made me feel cold. And I never will forget it. It was just a very evil feeling. And I said, well, hey. And he looked at me and said, nice to meet you, and then turned away from me and began drinking his beer and eating his food again. Before she met him, Dana had no idea the kind of monster Simmons was but she had some idea the moment he made eye contact with her. That was a very, 
you know, even right now, my heart feels, I mean, my chest feels tight just because it was such a, an eerie thing for me to see somebody. I'd never seen anybody that close that looked that evil. That wasn't the only thing that shook Dana that night. After she and Loretta retreated to Loretta's bedroom to do their homework, Dana noticed the deadbolts on her friend's bedroom door. I remember looking up like I was going to get up and go to the bathroom. And I remember looking at her door, and there were three deadbolts on the inside of her bedroom door. You know, I was a, a teenager. I really didn't think about what that could possibly mean at that moment. But I knew that it wasn't good. And so, you know, I asked her, I said, why do you have, why are there locks on the inside? And she just got very sad um, looking and I said, are you okay? What's going on? And I don't remember everything verbatim, but I do remember that she just said, well, things aren't what they seem. And I'm like, okay. And I said, well, are we safe? Do you want me to take you to my house? And she said, we'll be fine. It isn't known whether Loretta was subjected to the same sexual abuse as her older sister, Sheila, but there are suspicions. The news of Loretta having deadbolts on her bedroom door heightened those suspicions. Dana still had to use the bathroom that evening. Loretta told her she would walk with her outside to use the outhouse. That was the moment Dana learned Loretta lived in a house with no indoor plumbing. The entire night was a lot for Dana to take in. She realized the hell that her friend was living through. During the night, Loretta continued to share one dark secret after another with her friend before they fell asleep. Dana went home the following morning and talked to her parents about her night. Dana's younger sister was listening to the conversation, and she spoke up. She knew Loretta's younger siblings, and they too had disturbing stories to tell about living in that house on Mockingbird Hill. She said the younger Simmons children told her that they would go to one of their various hiding places on the property to get away from their father. Dana's parents heard enough. They told Dana that under no circumstances was she allowed to spend the night at the Simmons house again. Months later, the day the news broke of the bodies being pulled from the property, Dana, who like many teenagers, liked to sleep in on days she did not have school, was awakened that afternoon by her grandmother. She told Dana that her mom was on the phone. Dana got out of bed, came into the living room, sat down in her grandfather's chair, and spoke with her mother, who gave her the harrowing news. Dana refused to believe it. And so my grandmother walks over while I'm sitting there in the chair and turns on um, the TV. And uh, that particular moment, and I'll never forget it, it pops up on the TV. And there was people carrying this black bag and they didn't have it zipped all the way up. And I remember seeing Loretta, her hand, her arm just hanging out and she had on that white t-shirt um, that had the Pepsi Cola colors on it, but it had Jesus on the front instead of the word Pepsi Cola. And I knew it at that point that this was real. And I cried, I, my grandmother held me. Um, I couldn't watch anymore, I didn't wanna watch anymore. I did not watch anymore. I just could never get that out of my head. 
seeing her like that. I mean, I knew it was her. And um, I don't remember much after that. During the next several days and weeks, various outlets, including the New York Times and producers from Geraldo Rivera's syndicated talk show, reached out to Dana to interview her. Her mother and grandmother fielded those calls and turned them down on Dana's behalf. She never granted an interview request until now, 36 years later. The night after Simmons was executed, THV11, the CBS affiliate in Little Rock, aired a 30-minute special, Mind Over Murder. The special was hosted by Ann Broadwater. All that Simmons disclosed in those eight letters he wrote to Ann and those four one-on-one -on -one meetings he had with her were finally going to be shown to viewers. I first met Gene Simmons in this small room at the Polk County Detention Center. He had written to me and requested a face-to-face -face meeting, and I agreed, although I couldn't imagine what he wanted to say. I'd never met the man, nor had I covered any of the stories about his crime. That initial meeting led to others. Anne's special news report included interviews with Vio Shields, Becky's sister, and Vi's husband, Roger. She also interviewed Dennis McNulty's father and brother, Patrick Sr. and Patrick Jr., the trust that Anne accrued with the O'Shields and McNulty families was something she protected more than anything else. She knew she was getting access to a notorious killer, access that no one else was getting. But her relationship with the two families Simmons had devastated was what mattered the most to Anne. That's what kept her moving forward, even at the peak of all the pre-trial and post-trial chaos. The coverage, I mean, there was national coverage. We had people coming in from everywhere. We had people covering every single angle of it. And he's sitting in a cell, you know, the whole time. And he's not talking to anybody. But here I come waltzing in, and they're all like, what's going on? Like I mentioned before, it fell into my lap. And so I, I couldn't ignore it. I couldn't not take advantage of that. I, I really felt that it was bigger than me and that I just wanted to try to get as much insight into his twisted mind as possible to answer questions. That was really what was driving my bus. Earning the trust of those two families, and Vio Shields in particular, was not easy, especially when they discovered that she was communicating with Simmons. Anne was open with them about that, and about what she was hoping to ascertain with her conversations with Simmons. I don't know if he knew that I was talking to Viola O'Shields. She had reached out to me. And in the beginning, that was kind of a dance because I think that she too was skeptical about what I was doing and what, what my intentions were. So I think after we had talked a couple of times, I think she began to trust me and see that I was on her side and trying to find out what I could and started uh, asking them, what do you want to know? I will do my utmost to get that out of him before he goes. In spite of Anne's efforts, there was little she could get out of Simmons. Anne would say that when she headed into a meeting with Simmons, she knew she had to play his game. He was intense and uncompromising. He set the rules. Anne said she came out of those meetings completely drained. It was like her brain ached afterward. Anne described to me what her last meeting with Simmons was like. It took place March 14, 1989, two days before his originally scheduled execution. So we were in a big dining hall. 
uh, that had been emptied out. It was just a large building with um, some kind of slick floor. Everything was very kind of white. And then there were chairs. It was a large room and there were chairs all around the edge of the room. And almost every chair I remember was full. People were sitting in those chairs and watching us talk. And I remember he was kind of amused. I was a little confused, but I think he, in a strange way, enjoyed the attention. That was the dichotomy of Ronald Gene Simmons. On one hand, he maintained that he never wanted greater notoriety. He turned down one media request after another. He never gave a televised interview. He swore that he would never give the media something they could parlay into a ratings boost or a money grab. At the same time, Anne and others who observed him seemed to think he relished the level of notoriety he was getting. Anne did ask Simmons more than once why he did what he did. Why did he kill his family? He gave her a two-word answer. Family problems. The casualness of that answer astounded her. In thinking about that, I, I don't know the arc of his thought process of what he allowed himself to remember. If in his own mind he was able to go back to the scenes that he was responsible for, the carnage. I don't know, he wasn't, it wasn't an emotional thing that when he said it, it was just matter of fact. Like, it, it's, it's almost like that gave you insight into how he compartmentalized it and how he thought of it. There wasn't remorse, there wasn't any kind of insight in, into, or, or any sign that he was disturbed by what he had done. It's almost like it was an out of body thing or some, something somebody else did that he kind of, you know, okay, that happened. That's another example of how ill he was. I mean, I don't think anybody, how could you ever be in that situation and just chalk it up to family problems? During their last meeting, Simmons did show emotion. Anne asked whether he missed his family. His eyes welled up and he nodded his head. I really think that's the only time I ever saw any kind of remorse, any kind of glimpse of understanding of what he had done. It was like a crack in the shell, kind of. I really think that I was shocked. I remember seeing that and then thinking, is that really what I'm seeing? Because I hadn't seen that. And then I did a you know, check. Yep, that's, that's what he's doing. Never saw it again. Never saw a glimpse of it before, ever. Anne was never interested in writing or publishing a book. She was not interviewed on 2020. She did not appear on a current affair or any other syndicated news magazine show that was on the air at the time. They were known to pay fees to people for appearances. Anne refused to go that route. You know, as I'm sitting here talking about him, but I really felt like anything that would, uh, if I if I tried to help sensationalize him in any way, I, I would thought that that would be wrong. I did not see it as, oh, lucky me, I'm getting the, I'm, I'm the reporter who gets to tell this story. I was like, oh my God, I'm the reporter who has to tell this story. And uh, never, never looked at it as being anything other than that. Anne told me that she always had the O'Shields and McNulty's in mind from the moment she agreed to meet Simmons. And they thanked her for the work she did by writing letters to her after the special aired, letting her know they appreciated how honestly and delicately she presented their side of the story. In the special, 
Vi and Roger recalled to Anne how they learned that Sheila's daughter, Sylvia, was her father's daughter. Vi did not find out until many years after Sylvia was born. Here she is describing the first time she saw Sheila with her daughter. And I just looked and I said, yours? She said, yes, real proud, and put her head down. And uh, Becky said, I told her, does she know her father? She said, yes, but we didn't push him for marriage. Becky and Sheila were not forthcoming with Vi at first, but eventually, Becky spilled everything to her and Roger. Sometime later, the O'Shields were finally able to talk to Becky candidly about Sheila and Sylvia during a trip to Dover when Simmons wasn't home. That's when she broke down. She cried and just told me everything. Everything. I don't know how it started. She just started blubbering out. She says, Sheila's baby is James, and just Boy, it just came flowing out of her. Patrick McNulty Jr., Dennis's brother, told Anne in the same special that he and his family never knew the full story of who Sylvia's father was. Dennis never told them. I could tell her something in the back of his mind that uh, was bothering him that he wanted to tell me. And he, he never did. And I, heard, I learned from my mother that it was about Sylvia. He had told us that she had been raped and uh, couldn't give up the child. Did you know it was James? No, we didn't know that. We, we found out when the rest of the world did. After the massacre, the McNulty family made a shocking discovery. Inside Sheila's closet, they found a box of cassette tapes. On those tapes were songs and messages that her father had mailed to her. He was taping country western music. It was very poor quality. He was probably taping it off of a, off of a radio itself because you could hear background noises. In between the songs, you could hear him sobbing and saying the same thing, you know, you lied to me and so forth, all that were in between the songs. So, and it's been going on for years, tapes. Yeah. So that, that, it was something he'd thought about for years. In, interspersed between the tape, it's, he would say like, um, you lied to me, uh, Sheila. You could have had the best of both worlds, but now it's too late. He just was try, just trying to torture her. She wasn't there for him to make miserable, so he made her miserable at home by sending her these tapes. From the sound of the voice and the, and the songs that he played, it was, you done me wrong, you know, type song. One of the songs on one of the tapes was Willie Nelson's version of Always On My Mind. To this day, Anne cannot listen to that song without thinking of Ronald Gene Simmons. Of course. You can't go through something like this and not have it affect you at all. I think I've told you that one song is really the only touchstone for me through the decades that I can't, that triggers. That's a trigger. The Willie Nelson, you were always on my mind. Because I know that's the shoebox that the McNulty said that they found that he had been sending Sheila cassette tapes. So that song comes on and it ruined the song for me, but that's the one trigger. Very few people have had to deal with that constant replay of unpleasant memories related to this case the way Dana has. Although she did bury a few of them, at least for a while, Dana told me she had to dig up memories that she had long ago buried to take part in this podcast. She did so willingly because she wanted people to know how wonderful Loretta and her mother and siblings were. She wanted to do her part to make sure that any story being told about this case was not just going to be about Ronald Gene Simmons, but the beautiful family he destroyed. 
She still loves and admires Loretta, and still takes solace in the fact that she and her family gleaned as much happiness out of life that they could. She was a fighter, and I know that her mom and her siblings were fighters. They loved life. They desperately wanted to be happy and to live life the way that life was meant to be lived. And you knew that when you were around them. And it was a wonderful, joyful, honestly, time with them. That family was sweet and kind and loving and generous. Ronald Jean Simmons is a name that sends shivers down the spines of Arkansans who remember living through the events of 1987. But it does not seem to be a name that many people outside of Arkansas think of whenever they list the most infamous killers of the past. One reason why that might be such an oddity is that Simmons, who went by his middle name, Gene, shared the name of a rock star who literally dresses up as a demon on stage. Even still, the Arkansas Gene Simmons is not that well known, at least not outside Arkansas and maybe Otero County, New Mexico. I bring this up not because I feel as though Simmons should have more notoriety. I tend to think, and I'm far from alone on this, that there is justice in the fact that his name and face aren't so widely known. But the question remains. I posed that question to a few of my guests and mentioned a few killers who were responsible for dozens of body bags being filled in the areas they roamed. I specifically mentioned Jeffrey Dahmer, John Wayne Gacy, and Ted Bundy. I chose those three because, like Simmons, they all had that extra sinister signature that elevated their criminal profiles. Dahmer was a cannibal. Gacy targeted mostly teenage boys and buried his victims underneath his house. Bundy had a penchant for burglary and necrophilia. As for Simmons, he incested and impregnated his daughter, violently killed all of his children and grandchildren, buried half of his victims in a pit on his property, and stuffed two more inside the trunks of separate cars. So why isn't Simmons thought of similarly with the likes of Dahmer, Gacy, and Bundy? When I brought up this point with Pat Rice, my former boss, he theorized that location had a lot to do with it. I think it may be because of where he committed his crimes. New Mexico is a pretty sparsely populated state and low income to boot. Arkansas is a pretty sparsely populated state and low income as well. And I think as a result of that, the level of coverage once he got out of Arkansas was less. And I think that's, to me, that's the only plausible explanation I can have. Because certainly what he did was just as terrible as, you know, is about as terrible as you could possibly do. You know, largest family mass murderer ever. To me, that was it. It was a it was a huge story in Arkansas, but I don't know how huge a story it was once you got out of outside of Ar- Arkansas. Pat is right. Dahmer and Gacy committed their crimes in and around two major cities with hyper-attentive news media. Bundy's crimes, meanwhile, covered an enormous region containing several large news markets, and he wound up committing the last of his killings in Florida. That last fact played a huge part in generating Bundy's folk villain status. Florida allows cameras and recording devices inside courtrooms. Bundy's trial was moved from tiny Tallahassee to sprawling Miami, and television cameras captured his every move. His sociopathy and narcissism were on full display and shown to millions. Simmons had only a fraction of that exposure. 
But there might be a couple more factors as to why Ronald Gene Simmons never reached Dahmer, Gacy, or Bundy levels of attention. There's a time element to consider, one that could very well be unique to Simmons. That timeline, from killings to capture to conviction to execution, was so short that maybe the Simmons effect did not have enough time to simmer and then seep into the public's collective consciousness. There was not enough time for any buildup of suspense leading up to Simmons' trials, especially not the first trial. It took place only a few months after his arrest. Once there was a conviction, there were no appeals, and therefore no chance for a retrial or new sentencing hearing. Aside from those four interviews by Ann Broadwater that included no note-taking, let alone video footage, there were no prison interviews. Simmons turned down virtually every request, and he got a steady stream of them. There just wasn't anything that could have happened to renew or raise people's awareness to the case because everything happened at a meteor-like speed. The name, face, and story of Ronald Gene Simmons never got soaked up, so to speak. There is something else to consider as far as the timeline is concerned. Serial killers select, capture, and kill their victims, at random mostly. They usually do so during an extended period of time, or at least they did before DNA testing came along. Certainly in the case of Dahmer, Gacy, and Bundy, the stories of the missing victims raised the public's fervor level before any suspect was linked to those cases. All of Simmons's crimes, while extensive, were uncovered within a 24- to 36-hour window, and it was after he was already in jail. Even the incest news got out to the public relatively early. There was no time for any fear to fester, aside from those frenetic 40 minutes or so while he was driving around Russellville shooting people. So Simmons could be categorized more as a mass killer than a serial killer, even though he did resemble a serial killer in the way he methodically murdered his familial victims across four days. So that could also be added to the list of possible reasons why those outside Arkansas don't have Ronald Gene Simmons etched in their minds. The names of mass killers don't resonate the same way as those of serial killers. But for most of my guests, if not all of them, the name Ronald Gene Simmons resonates more than any other name associated with evil. Without any urging at all, Scott Bowles, who covered crime all over the country, from Dover to Detroit to the District of Columbia, compared Simmons to Dahmer. Simmons murdered 16 victims, Dahmer 17. And to Scott, one is far worse than the other. And it isn't the one you probably think. Detroit would send me to cover Dahmer. And before I told USA Today, I'm going to have to quit because I'm not going to do crime anymore. They had me cover Columbine. They had me cover the Paducah, Kentucky school shooting. And for all the crime that I covered, nobody comes close to Simmons. Simmons is the most evil creature I've ever experienced. And I, and I was at Dahmer's apartment building, and Simmons has Dahmer beat by a mile. Less than 16 months after Simmons' execution, the newspaper war came to an unceremonious end. The Arkansas Gazette was shut down, and a company headed by the Arkansas Democrats' then-publisher, Walter E. Hussman Jr., purchased its assets. The newspaper's name was changed to the Arkansas Democrat Gazette. 
the Democrat won the war, and it won a number of battles during the coverage of the Simmons case. But it should be noted that the Gazette earned a few battle victories, too. I'd be remiss if I did not acknowledge that the excellent reporting from Democrat alumni Pat Rice and Noel Oman and Gazette alumnus Scott Bowles were a big help to me in my research for this case. Here is Scott explaining from his perspective why the Democrat was victorious. And credit to the Democrats, they got into the fight and Gannett, which bought the Gazette when I was there. Gannett is not into newspaper wars. Gannett is into newspaper mergers, joint operating agreements, truces. Gannett is not a fighting corporation. Hussman, boy, they were as tough as journalists can be in in Arkansas. They really were. And the Gazette did have a bit of ego to it and considered itself kind of like the Times. All the Post is just that little B-League team. And credit the Democrats. They cut us to ribbons. As I alluded to earlier, Scott Bowles went on to continue his magnificent career in Detroit, where he lived through another newspaper war between the news and free press, and in Washington, D.C., where he wrote for the Washington Post. The two-time Pulitzer finalist eventually moved to the West Coast and landed with Gannett-owned USA Today. Not long after he got there, Scott was no longer interested in writing stories about murder and mayhem. There was an angst to crime writing that didn't expect, didn't know was going to happen. And I still have no interest. I will never, I became a, a crime writer after the execution and it weighed on me. I, I did it for a decade and a half and I will never go back to it. When I left crime writing, I went to USA Today wanting the fluffiest job, wanting what Bob Lutkin said the fluffiest news I can find. So I became a movie critic at at USA Today. I will never cover crime again. I am not interested in what the worst people can do. Scott says he remains proud of the work he did at the Gazette and on the Simmons case, but it came with a cost. Since witnessing Simmons's execution, he suffers from recurring nightmares. The irony of that can't be understated. Simmons gave a lot of people nightmares, but Simmons's early death meant he did not have to suffer long from his nightmares. Scott shared some of his thoughts on that. Simmons kind of made me a cynic about everything. They say that when you witness an execution, you'll be against the death penalty, and I am, but not for the reasons that I think they mean. Simmons died so peacefully Can there really be a man this vile who lives this way and dies the way he wanted to die? Simmons got everything he wanted. He wanted to live on canned oysters, and he got to do that. He wanted to rape his daughter, and he did that. He wanted to die as if he were in a hospital getting. IV fluids to get you hydrated again, to go to sleep and then die. That's not justice. 
Simmons called his shots right until the end. The last thing he had any control over was the speed of his execution. You could say he played an active role in becoming the fastest person executed since the reinstatement of the death penalty. Simmons's desire to control, manipulate, and terrorize affected everyone who was close to him, especially his children. Those kids were affected in ways that can't be fully understood, but Scott Bowles, in that big story he did that was published the Sunday before Simmons's execution, found someone who explained it effectively. She was a classmate of 11-year-old Mary Ann Simmons, who described just how much the girl's father victimized her. The girl Scott spoke to was named Angie, and she was barely a teenager when Scott interviewed her. Angie told Scott that during the bus ride home from school, the afternoon of December 22, 1987, Marianne and her older sister, Loretta, both told her that they did not want to go home. They were serious about that. Angie could see it on their faces. As the bus slowed down and rolled toward the driveway to Mockingbird Hill, Marianne nearly refused to get off the bus. It was almost like she knew something terrible was about to happen to her. This was Angie's quote to Scott. Marianne kept saying she didn't want to go home. I couldn't figure out why she would want to stay at school. It was Christmas. Thank you for listening. If you like The Devil of Pope County, please leave a rating and review. I want to thank all of my guests for their time and willingness to participate in this series. They had to revive some difficult memories in order to do so. This was a case that contained a lot of dark subject matter, and one that took an emotional toll on many of them. I'm very appreciative of the trust they gave me to tell their stories, and I hope I did so properly, and with the right amount of care and respect. I also personally want to thank Democrat Gazette Managing Editor Allison Hogue and Assistant Managing Editor Glenn Chase for allowing me the time and resources to research and tell this story, and to Democrat Gazette Multimedia Editor Kyle McDaniel for his terrific production work. You'll hear more content from me in the future. In the meantime, please follow me on your preferred social media platforms at Holt Podcast. Until next time, take care.